Welcome to episode six of the Brave Ideas for Social Change podcast series, produced by the University of Denver Graduate School of Social Work, which is celebrating its 90th anniversary this academic year. The series draws on GSSW faculty expertise for fast-moving discussions on emerging research, practice, and policy innovations to spur social change. Today's guest is Professor Emeritus John Kaiser, who graduated from GSSW's master's program in 1975 and our doctoral program in 1990. John served on the GSSW faculty from 1990 until his retirement in 2014. His research chronicled the history of segregation and social work education, in addition to documenting the origins of GSSW. He contends that cultivating historical consciousness and imagination are required if we are to truly reckon with our past, repair harms, and improve how we teach and practice social work now and into the future. John, we so appreciate your contributions in this area. Thank you for sharing some of what you've learned. Thank you, Amanda. Uh, It's uh, good to be back briefly. (laughs) Uh, And it's an honor to be asked to contribute. It really is. I really commend you and the school for investigating the profession's own history. And I think it fits very well under the podcast frame of acts of bravery, because there are uncomfortable truths to learn about who we were, who we are today, and the challenge of who we will need to be going forward. John, you talk about historical consciousness and imagination. Let's ground our listeners. What does that mean to you? Well, I'm going to borrow uh, the title of a book by Helen Harris Perlman. And she wrote a really wonderful memoir with this great title, Looking Back to See Ahead. And I think the key concept here is the notion that the study of history is reflexive. That is, we're in a dialogue, really, between the events and people from the past and those of us in present day about the meaning of what has transpired. And I I distinguish this approach from like a traditional research investigation into the past, which would focus on uh, trying to understand how events unfolded as experienced by the people of a particular time, drawing largely on contemporaneous accounts of how those events were recorded and documented, assuming that they were. Um, And hopefully uh, a good researcher is going to look for as many different points of view as possible. A reflexive approach to history goes further. It takes into account the influence both on the original documenters and recorders of the events as they occurred and later historical investigators takes into account their cultural history, their cultural identity, and their personal experience. And so when quote-unquote official histories are put forward, they're at best a partial rendering of what has occurred, but not the full story but they're also likely to be highly biased. Marginalized communities and individual people's lived experience typically haven't been included in the official histories. And it's not just because their voices were deemed unimportant, but because in many cases, their perspective ran counter 
to the dominant historical narrative being constructed. The origin of your interest in history actually started with research in the lives of individual social workers. I'd love for you to reflect a bit on the revelation that led you to actually ratchet that up a bit and to begin studying the larger history of racism in social work and higher education. When I joined the faculty, uh, a colleague on faculty, Pam Metz, and I began to study the lived experiences of women and men who are drawn to the field of social work. We asked our informants what brought them into the profession, what stained them throughout their career, and what wisdom they wish to pass on to the next generation of social workers. It's through this work that we interviewed Dr. Virginia Gill, who was a 1961 MSWDU graduate. And at the time I met her, was she happened to be volunteering in the GSSW alumni office. Dr. Gill was an African-American, then in her 70s, who was born and raised and educated in segregated Louisiana. Her first career was as a public school teacher in a segregated school district. So she's in Louisiana. The premier school of social work in Louisiana is Tulane University in uh, New Orleans. So this is late, uh, middle to late 1950s. And she submits an application there. And she does all the usual things as students or prospective students do in submitting uh, an application, your educational history, your work history. But Tulane also asks for a personal photograph. So she sends all that out very quickly, gets a letter of rejection back. And the statement is, well, Tulane does not accept Negro students. She's very deflated, very discouraged about social work and ready to give up. But she has a friend who's living in Denver. And the friend says, I think you should come to Denver. School of Social Work, University of Denver is accepting Black students. You should apply there. She's pretty skeptical, but she goes ahead and does that. She is accepted into our program. And she graduates and goes on actually to get a doctorate in healthcare administration later. But she has a very positive experience in our master's program. And thing that just uh, stayed with her is the kind of support that she got from the faculty, not only in the classroom, She had uh, three young children with her. They were living in one of the small graduate apartments that used to be on campus. And certain faculty really provided additional support to her and her kids outside of the classroom. So she's telling me all this. And I am having just this internal, fairly major reaction. There's segregated schools of social work. How did I not know that? After the interview is over, I go back to the sort of fundamentals of oral history research and sort of the idea of you investigate both the memory trail, meaning the personal recollections of an informant, and you also investigate the paper trail, and that's both published as well as unpublished documents. And so I'm on the trail here. Where is there published information or even unpublished information about how segregation in social work education got created and established. 
and I'm running into like nothing, I start building uh, timelines uh, and I end up searching in a number of archives, primarily the social welfare history archives at the University of Minnesota and Minneapolis, but other places as well. And I discover that all of the schools of social work in segregated white-only public and private universities in the South were accepted as members uh, without any objection into the accrediting organization that precedes CSWE. So this is be the American Association of Professional Schools of Social Work. But the relevance for CSWE is all of those organizations accredited by the previous accrediting body are just adopted without objection or, or question at all when CSW gets started in the, in the 1950s. So I, I start looking at the Atlanta, Atlanta School of Social Work, which is, was specifically designed for African-American students. This is seen as a tremendous achievement. Um, the, the downside of that is, is that it's also segregated. It's not open to whites. Um, and Black students who are interested in social work, either by their own choice or because they have are given no other choice, go to Atlanta. There's very few Northern schools that are admitting Black students, and those that do in small numbers, those students are not living on campus. So the segregation may not have been in the classroom, but it certainly would be in terms of um, uh, their lodging. There's this obvious contradiction uh, between the practices of these schools and the accommodation in accrediting organizations between what, what we say our espoused values are, you know, our commitment to racial inclusion, our commitment to social justice, and at the same time, our, our, our more than tacit support uh, for for segregated and exclusionary practices, and so I really I really ended up saying that um, there was such a push early in our profession to professionalize social work, and part of that had to do with establishing schools of social work all over the country. That ended up being more important than taking a stand or raising objections in host universities. Um, uh, to what was going on. So I ended up saying this is a history that's not just been avoided, it's been actively suppressed. Um, I ended up doing uh, an oral history interview with Catherine Kendall, uh, then also uh, in her 90s, but very active, uh, very uh, knowledgeable. And she, she actually was, she'd worked in the predecessor uh, accrediting body, and she was present at the birth <laughs> CSWE and had a long career there. And so I'm interviewing her. She had just written this, this book about the first 20 years of CSWE, again, with no mention in that book at all about uh, segregated schools of social work. So I'm asking her about this. And so she, uh, she, she's both, both forthcoming and maybe not as forthcoming as I, as I would have wished. And she tells me, well, 
Yes, that happened, but about two years after Brown versus Board of Education, there was this movement by her, by Whitney Young Jr., who had been dean at the Atlanta School of Social Work, to create a, an accreditation standard mandating that schools uh, have no discrimination at all. And it takes eight years to get this through CSWE. Although Kendall claimed uh, that the delay was due to the fact that the delegate assembly, rather than an accreditation com commission or the board of directors was the primary decision-making body at CSWE, it was never clear how much opposition or resistance may have come from the segregated accredited schools themselves. John, I so appreciate how you, you took us along a storyline from an individual case to then the field overall. Let's, let's stop in the middle at the University of Denver. What was the historical context at the time that the University of Denver social work program was founded and at other key points in our school's history? Well, I think the, the history of segregation is very relevant to how we got started. Um, so the DU school social worker, the planning for it uh, takes about 10 years and it gets started in the 1920s. And this is the exact same era in which the Ku Klux Klan rises to great political power in Colorado. And so this version of the Klan is not only anti-Black, they're anti Catholic, anti-Jewish, and especially anti-immigrant. And they have a very strong appeal to uh, Denver's white Protestant middle-class population. They portray themselves as, quote, the guardians of the 100% real Americans, unquote. Among the, the nefarious deeds done by uh, our governor, Clarence Morley, who was an openly declared Klan's members, was he eliminated the funding for the director's position at the State Department of Public Welfare, and his administration targeted uh, local Catholic and Jewish social agencies. So that's the background in the 1920s that uh, the planning for uh, our program gets started. DU decides to establish a school social work on the recommendation of a group of nationally prominent educators. And their recommendation was that the DU start a quote unquote, first class uh, school of social work. And it's a great recommendation because there's nothing in a multi-state area in the Rocky Mountain West. So the Denver chapter of what was then the American Association of Social Workers, several social agencies, they pony up half the money for a two-quarter series of demonstration courses um, in social work. They actually recruit prominent caseworker author from uh, what was then Western Reserve University. There's a, just a tremendous response from the community. So DU starts the Department of uh, Social Work in 1931. At that point in time, the depression is well underway. Great Depression is well underway. The power of the Klan has collapsed politically in Colorado, and there's just this clamor demand to have trained social workers do both social casework with clients, both 
in the white community and people of color, as well as people trained in social welfare administration. I'm sure there are many members of our GSSW community who have never heard that. Thank you for sharing a bit about the context around our founding. Let's go a, a few years into the future. Are there moments that you can point to where GSSW has attempted to combat racism within the profession? Yeah, I think we have actually uh, a positive history and something that I think we should honor and uh, be proud of. So in the 1920s, again, Klan is in power. Uh, It was recently revealed that there were over 30,000 enrolled members of the Klan in Denver, and at the time, we're the 25th largest city in the the United States. But there's another history, W.E.B. Du Bois, singles out Denver as a model of racial inclusion. and, And he's talking particularly about the era before World War I. But nonetheless, there is both histories there, uh, histories of tolerance and respect and inclusion, as well as, you know, the Klan history. And so when the Department of Social Work gets started, we have our first student of color, uh, a man by the name of uh, Herman Washington, also from Louisiana. And thereafter, every single year, you have a small but growing number of students of color uh, enrolled in the program. And fast forwarding a little uh, little bit into the 1950s, we graduate the first Native American student, Howard Walking Stick, to get an MSW in the entire country comes from our program in the 1950s. Uh, the first Chicana, Marta Sotomayor, she receives a doctorate from us uh, in social work in 1973. And the first Native American, Ron Lewis, who's a Cherokee from Oklahoma, was one of my teachers in the master's program. He receives his doctorate in 1974. And I I think that maybe not just highlight those particular individuals, because if you look in the 60s and 70s in particular in the master's program, there's this whole cadre of African-American students and Chicano, Chicano students are coming through the program, they're graduating, and all of them go into major leadership positions, not just in social agencies, but uh, in state, uh, city, state, and uh, federal government positions. And the last thing I, I just try to single out is uh, the work of Ken Kindlesberger, uh, who was dean in the program from about 1972 to 1979. So Kindlesberger, before he had come to University of Denver, he had been dean at the University of Louisville in the Kent School of Social Work. And during his time as dean there, he is a major civic leader working to desegregate the Louisville public school system. In CSWE and other places, he's a good friend and close colleague with Whitney Young Jr., And so when he comes to Denver, you know, a very strong emphasis on increasing the inclusion of students of color and faculty of color into the program. One of the things I realized, uh, this is through another oral history interview with another faculty member who told me that in Kendallsberger's years as dean, the percentage of MSW 
students from uh, Black and Chicano uh, students was probably as high as 30% uh, of the total student body. And he also increased the number of African-American and Latino, Latina people in both tenure track and adjunct faculty positions. So I think that's an important history. I'm not simply saying we rest on our laurels and say, yay us, but I think it's, it's in stark contrast to some of the other schools that I've looked at. Thank you for tracing this history. Let's begin to shift our conversation to the future. What's the relevance of the profession's history to social work today and into the future? You know, I I think that's the the key question, and I'm not going to claim clairvoyance about, about the future. I think the very first thing is that we have to bring this hidden history or a legacy of shame, if you will, into our conscious awareness as educators. And it has to be brought into the official history of social work education. And I would just say, frankly, this is the piece that worries me the most. CSWE and probably all of the other segregated schools of social work and maybe all social work programs in general, I'm sure they can point to progress that they've made or the things that they did moving forward without trying to say they're spinning history. If you only focus on the positive achievements of racial inclusion and you don't speak about or you don't admit, don't acknowledge the history that's gone before, then I think that that's perpetuating a somewhat of a false history. I think that leads to a sort of a second series of questions. Since we've avoided it, we've suppressed this history, we have to ask what harm has that done to those that we've excluded? Uh, what harm has it done to the kinds of social work schools and educational programs that we've developed? And what harm has it done to the students that we excluded And what harm has it done to the students who have been recruited into the profession, but without this kind of knowledge? And I think the third thing is we have to say, well, we're the current custodians of the profession's educational enterprise. And we must ask ourselves, what kind of future must we build to correct the harm that we are complicit in? John, I'm sure you've tracked since uh, George Floyd's murder in 2020, the American Psychiatric Association issued a public apology for past racist practices, even established a truth commission to work toward accountability. This year, the National Association of Social Workers issued a similar apology. What more is needed for social work and institutions of higher education to repair harms and fundamentally change our teaching and our practice? Well, I think the NSW statement uh, is tremendously important uh, simply because there's been nothing like it previously. And uh, I think whether you're an NASW member or not, that deserves a deep reflection and response. I think it behooves CSWE to do something similar. 
I would say, whether you call it a truth commission or an accountability task force, you have to be bring that hidden history of supporting exclusionary practices uh, forward. I am just absolutely convinced that we have to go beyond our traditional way of teaching history. We get stuck in this you know, requirement of we have to have a syllabi and textbook and assigned reading, typically a written paper assignment so that we have a way of evaluating student learning. We have to go beyond just intellectual exposure, intellectual understanding of the past. We have to help students make an emotional connection about what life in a poor house was like and what an overseer of the poor actually did and the harm that that might have caused uh, to families. That was one example. In another class, we put Jane Adams on trial. I was the prosecuting attorney. <laughs> the students were the jury, and we, I was prosecuting her for running a segregated settlement house. In another class, I, I learned this is from the uh, field, one of the field coordinators at school. Her mother, this is a Jewish family, um, her mother had uh, memories as a child of the Ku Klux Klan burning crosses on her parents' lawn. I invited um, uh, this elderly woman in uh, with her daughter, and uh, they shared that story. In another class, uh, I had an assign in-class assignment where the students had to research the congressional record. And I did this when healthcare, uh, Affordable Health Care Act was being debated, and later when one of the other efforts to uh, I- immigration reform was being uh, uh, debated. You know, look. Let's w- let's look at what we can find about was social work present uh, testifying before Congress? Was did social work mount lobbying efforts? What did they do so that to try to form a judgment about how effective we were, or perhaps were we effective uh, in affecting social change? So these are di- sort of different approaches I tried to engage students intellectually and emotionally. I think if I were teaching today, and this is what I'd recommend for anybody who has an interest in infusing history into their courses, to look for community storytellers or leaders who can convey what working with social workers and social agencies was like for better or worse. I try to find artists, uh, playwrights, filmmakers, documentarians, uh, who can move us beyond an intellectual understanding of the past so we can make a deeper emotional connection. And that's the place where I think we have to find the resolve and the courage to change the future. John, as you reflect on our history, any advice for future generations of social workers and educators? Uh, well, the first recommendation is don't don't wait for ninety a 90th anniversary to <laughs> think about the history. And you're not. Um, I, I just think that's a tendency that organizations have. You know, it's oh, we have this anniversary coming up, so let's think about history. The place I would really turn to uh, is the preparation of new faculty members in their doctoral education. And we have, you know, social work doctoral education is 
you know, very research for focused, quantitative, qualitative, mixed methods studies. And history research, which is really kind of located in the humanities department, really gets overlooked. And I would really like to see courses on, on historical research and maybe even elective courses on oral history methods. And then the sort of the last recommendation is that I would I was going to say find additional creative ways to teach history, but I think what I really mean is more dramatic ways to teach uh, history. Two weeks ago, uh, I was at the Denver Art Museum, and they have this newly opened exhibit, Indigenous Arts of North America, in the completely remodeled Carlo Ponte uh, building. And there is this very large canvas done by Kent Machman, is his name. It's a Cree Indian from the Fisher River Band in Canada. And this canvas is a picture of a rural village in Canada in which the Canadian Mounties and the Catholic priests and nuns have swooped into this village. They're yanking uh, the children away from um, their parents who are angry, um, distraught, and very powerless because these children are being taken off to boarding schools. You know, and I, I, that it's, it just was a haunting picture. It was impossible to look at it without feeling a, a sort of a deep response to it. And I, I thought back to the NASW uh, apology statement, and I thought, what would happen if we had artists create similar portrayals of the events mentioned in the NASW apology? So the NASW apology talks about settlement house workers that excluded Black clients, social workers that prevented clients from the right to vote, social workers that recruited Black men into the Tuskegee experiment, social workers participating in the removal of Native American children, social workers who participated as intake staff in the Japanese internment camps. If we had those kinds of depictions, those visual impacting paintings or films or whatever they might be, it would be impossible to look away. We would scream, we would, we would howl. But hopefully out of that shame is the courage and the brave ideas to affect change in the profession that are required for our survival in the future. Reflexive history is meant to be disruptive to our social construction of professional identity. And like every era of social work, there's just a great deal to do. So I would say in this particular area, hidden history of segregation and social work education, it's time to find the courage. It's time to get to work. This has been such a fascinating and critically important conversation. John, how fortunate GSSW is to call you an alum and a professor emeritus. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Subscribe to our Brave Ideas for Social Change podcast for more conversations like this. Learn more at socialwork.du.edu forward slash change. 
For more information on the history of GSSW and what the next 90 years may have in store for the school and the profession of social work, please visit socialwork.du.edu forward slash next 90.